That's a treat for me. We're in uh, Mark chapter 15, and we're going to pick up in verse 42. If you were here and got to hear uh, Sam last week, then you know that uh, from the cross, Jesus uh, utters up this loud cry. He gives up his spirit. He breathes his last. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, and then the soldier that's standing by there says, truly, this was the Son of God. This thing that happens on the cross, um, this, this, this thing where Jesus is uh, crucified, it's, it's the central point in all of human history. This is the thing that is uh, the most important thing that has ever happened. And Mark goes from this uh, picture of him dying on the cross, and he starts telling us some about who was there, and uh, he wants to bring forward uh, over the course of the next couple of days some um, some eyewitnesses, and the, the eyewitnesses that he uses to tell the story uh, are really incredible, and I think it, it gives us a lot of reason why we can be uh, confident about the thing that we believe. So he tells us about these eyewitnesses, and he, he brings in people that we just we just wouldn't expect, and, and I think with these witnesses that we don't expect, that the story actually gets greater validation, okay? That's one of the things that we'll talk uh, a good bit about today. So Mark 15, and I'm actually going to start in verse 40. I know Sam read 40 and 41 last week, but I want to start in verse 40, and um, then we're going to read up to chapter 16, verse 13. So there were also women looking, also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they were, there were also many other women who came up with, uh, with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already, uh, that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether, uh, he asked him whether he was already dead, verse 45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices. So they went to go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And, and they, were, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. Do not... Uh, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And he went out, and he, 
and, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and as- astonishment had seized them. And uh, they were, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Verse nine. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking uh, into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the day today, and we're thankful for the way that you are at work. We're thankful for the cross of Jesus that we uh, think about, Lord, so often and that we get to preach about and talk about today. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the death of Jesus. We thank you for his burial, and we thank you, God, for his resurrection. Thank you for the change in us that is made because of the obedience of Jesus and the plan that you uh, set forth Uh, to bring salvation into this world. And so we pray that you would guide our time as we speak tonight. We pray that you would uh, open our hearts and that you would guide us into truth. I pray that you would protect me from error. I pray, Jesus, that your name would be glorified and that people would put their faith in you. And I pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we talk about these unlikely witnesses. First, we have three ladies. We have Mary Magdalene. We have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And we have Salome. These women have been following Jesus and ministering to him since he was in Galilee. We see that uh, in 15 and verse, uh, verses 40 and 41. That's the first unlikely set of witnesses that Mark gives us. The second unlikely set, the second unlikely set includes Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph is a respected member of the council. And then when we read in John's gospel, we learn that uh, Nicodemus from John chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and also a secret believer in Jesus, that, that Nicodemus was helping Joseph with these preparations. So what do we see from these two kinds of unlikely witnesses? Uh, I think that we can see the truth. I think we can be sure that what we're getting is the truth. Here's the first thing. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus are historical facts. They're historical facts. For a couple of reasons, I think it's important that we have these kinds of witnesses. First, the testimony of women was not legally acceptable in, uh, in the first century for Jews. The testimony of these women was not even admissible in court. Secondly, we, we think about when it comes time to be buried, who does that? Jesus doesn't, his family doesn't show up. His disciples are not the ones that show up. Instead, there are these two Jewish leaders who were secret believers. They're the ones who come and uh, and claim his body and prepare him for burial. Now, all through the history of the church, people have tried to uh, attack this historical accuracy about Jesus' death and about his resurrection. They say, well, it wasn't really Jesus that died. Maybe it was that that guy Simon uh, who carried his cross. Maybe it was Peter. Maybe it was somebody else. Lots of people love to say that. It was actually Judas that died on the cross. But the behavior of the witnesses show some important things. And one of those things is that this is historically accurate. We can believe these things that we've been handed down. If you wanted to invent some sort of uh, resurrection narrative, right? If people got together and they said, we're going to pretend that Jesus died 
and we're going to pretend that Jesus came back to life, and we're going to call people to a new self-sacrificing lifestyle, and it's all going to be based around the teachings of Jesus, you would not, in that story, make the first people who know about it to be women. You wouldn't make it to be women. Along those same lines, same lines, you wouldn't have the disciples all run away and instead two previously secret believers from the, the ranks of the Jewish leaders be the ones who are bold enough to publicly associate themselves with Jesus. This is the kind of thing that was getting people cut off in Jewish society. They were being kicked out of the synagogue and they would go and present themselves to Pilate and ask for the body of someone who was just murdered because he was considered to be an enemy of the state. These kind of witnesses are important. We, we think nowadays that if something like this happened, if, if, or maybe if they had Facebook back in those days, and they said, oh, Jesus has been killed, and no family members got to see him, no friends got to see the body, but instead two people from the enemy party came and said, oh, we've been his secret believers all this time, and we, and we want to take his body, and we want to take care of it. Well, they would just go crazy, and they would say, oh, it's a cover-up. This can't possibly be true. This is not the way that we invent a believable story. If they were doing that, they chose the wrong characters. You don't choose women. You don't choose people who had never been with Jesus before. And so also the way that we see the story as it unfolds not only proves that, that Jesus died, but that it was Jesus who died, right? So this kind of takes on the idea of, well, maybe it was someone else who died on the cross. It's really improbable to think that the Roman guards missed out on the fact that Jesus just passed out, right? There are people, there's a whole thing called the swoon theory that at some point Jesus just passed out and then they took him down and they said that he was, uh, they said that he was, he was dead, but he really wasn't dead. It's hard to believe that the Roman soldiers missed the fact that he wasn't really dead. Also hard to believe that Joseph, Joseph, grabbed up his uh, beaten up body and carried it to the tomb where they uh, wrapped him up. They cleaned off all the blood. They applied 75 pounds of spices, according to John chapter 19. And then they wrapped him up in this shroud and put him in the tomb. It's hard to imagine that they would miss the fact that he uh, wasn't really dead. These, these guys took an incredible risk to, uh, to come alongside and uh, do this. And they wouldn't be uh, they wouldn't be uh, taking this kind of risk if they didn't know that Jesus really had died. I think next we can consider the, the ladies watched him die. These women watched him die. They watched his body move toward the grave. They watched as it was prepared. They watched as the grave was sealed. And when it was just light, the next day they go back and they go to the right place. The ladies wouldn't be doing this for the body of Simon of Cyrene. They wouldn't do this for the body of Judas. They wouldn't even do this for the body of Peter. Those ladies knew exactly where Jesus was buried. They know for sure that he was behind that stone that it had been sealed up. And they went to that place in the, on Easter morning, what we call Easter morning, looking for him because he was actually, factually, historically dead. It was Jesus and he died. Another thing I think that really uh, helps us to see how uh, powerful this story is and why it's a true story is that none of his followers expected him to come back to life. I, I think this is crazy because he had repeatedly been telling them he was going to be handed over. He would be tortured. He would be 
killed and he would be raised on the third day. And yet they still didn't expect that it was going to happen. Except for his enemies. I think this is really funny. If you look back in Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 62, it says this. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. If we go down to Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief uh, priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money and said to the soldiers, tell people his disciples came and stole him away while we were asleep. The, the Pharisees expected that Jesus might be raised from the dead, but his disciples did not think that he was going to be raised from the dead. They weren't sitting outside the tomb waiting for him. They weren't uh, making preparations for his homecoming or his return or any of those kinds of things. Instead, the ladies come with myrrh and aloe and spices for the tomb. They brought the things that, that, that first century people used to mask the odor of a decaying body. They went, expecting, they went expecting that he would be decaying, not that he would be resurrected. If you're building some new story, you certainly don't start with your first witnesses not believing the thing that the, that the main person was teaching. Then the third thing is this, uh, the beginning of chapter 16. The women, they leave this meeting with the angel, right? The angel comes to them. And he talks to them, and then he sends them away, right? It's probably the oddest part of the whole story as far as I'm concerned in verse uh, 8. They go out, they run away, and they don't say anything to uh, anyone, right? The angel confirms, you're at the right place. He's not here. And yet they still run away, and they don't tell anyone what they've heard. Of course, we know the ladies, uh, eventually, they did, they did tell people, right? They didn't start out doing the right thing, but... But they did go, and they did uh, eventually tell people. And the, the, but before that, the, the angel gave them uh, two specific things. They were supposed to do something, go, go somewhere specific, and they were supposed to say something specific. Go to Peter and the disciples and tell them to go to Galilee because Jesus was going to meet them there. But the ladies don't do that at all. They just completely disobey. They don't go immediately to the disciples. They don't give the message about Galilee. Now, they did. We know that they did because otherwise we wouldn't have heard the story. But they, they just come to this place in verse 8 where it says they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, the ESV that I'm reading from, uh, in Mark's gospel, the, he uses the word immediately 35 times, 35 times the word is in Mark's gospel. It's just really, of all the gospels, it's very fast paced. He uses it nine times in the first chapter. This move, the book just moves along. It's the short, uh, shortest one of the gospels. It just kind of has this breathless forward motion that's always going through it. And when we're reading it uh, over the course of months and months and months, story by story, that can be lost a little bit for us. 
Mark will start a story sometimes and then interrupts himself and instead tells a different story. And sometimes he comes back to the first story and he just, he just writes in this way that has a lot of forward momentum. And he gets to this place with the ladies and I think he just sort of slams the, the book shut as it were. He builds and builds and then ends with this. The ladies were afraid and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And if we think about this originally being told kind of orally, you know, I always imagine a bunch of people just sitting around a fire and he gets to this point and he says, and they went out and they didn't tell anybody about what they had heard. And it just sort of leaves the hearer with, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Am I going to behave like that? Where I, where I go out and I just don't tell anyone? Am I going to be afraid and run away? Am I going to, am I going to, am I going to disobey the message that I've been given? And so it's really easy for us to, to look at these kind of dis, the disciples, to look at the ladies and uh, fall, find fault and just be kind of judgmental toward them. But this, the question still falls into our laps as readers today, 2,000 years later. What do we, what do, we do with this story. And I think we have two options. We can accept it or we can reject it. And then when we make any of those, either of those two choices, we actually get uh, another choice uh, as well. So the first thing is we, we've read all the way through Mark together. We've thought about this gospel and we've seen how all of the, the miracles and all of these things have happened. We see this that Jesus died on the cross that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day. And so the question, the first option is this, Will you reject it? Will you reject this news? And the choice that comes after that is sort of an active rejective rejection or uh, what I would call a, a practical rejection. Uh, active rejection, rejection looks like this. Uh, maybe I don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. I don't believe that he was buried. I don't believe that he was raised from the dead. I don't think that he was a real person. I don't think that he would pay for my sins. And I don't think that I need him to pay for my sins anyway. That's a real kind of active rejection, right? You share the gospel with someone and they say, that's what you believe. I don't need to pay. I don't need someone paying for my own sins. And they, they just actively reject the gospel that way. The way that we practically reject it is by saying that we believe it, but we're never, ever changed by it. We, we reject it by our practice. And this, this one really is the more common. We, we have this kind of intellectual connection with uh, these facts, right? We, we say we believe these facts, but we're never actually changed by those facts. When I was a kid, um, my parents would smoke, we'd smoke cigarettes, right? And I remember time after time that someone would just, they would, they would take a cigarette and they would light it up and they would take a, and then they would say, don't ever start smoking. Smoking will kill you. And they would just go right back to it. If you really think that smoking is going to kill you, then you Stop smoking. That's just what you do. And so us as, as, as Christians, sometimes we say, oh, yeah, I believe that. I believe the Bible. I believe all these stories. I believe the songs that we sing. I believe, I believe, I believe. But we don't live like we believe. We don't live like that at all. And we practically kind of reject the gospel that way. The other thing that we can do is we can accept it. We believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day. And when we believe it, we get to ask ourselves, how is this impacting my life? Because believing in Christ should really impact our lives. We're we going to share it or are we going to keep quiet about it? 
right? It's easy to see the ladies in the story and think they didn't do the right thing or the disciples when they were hearing these things that they didn't hear the, that they didn't do the right things. And they, we can be judgmental, like I said, about them. But the question is here for us as well. Uh, we've received the same news that they received. We have it here. We can carry it around. We can have it on our phones. We can just, we can have it with us all the time. And so the question is, if we're receiving this news, are we being changed by it? And if we're receiving this news, are we allowing it to echo out of our lives and into the lives of other people? Are we going to be faithful and share it, or will we keep it to ourselves? Here's kind of the last question. What, what difference has this relationship made in your life? If you've said, I, I encountered the truth of this gospel, I believed it. So then the question is, what what difference has it made in your life and if you would say well it's not really made any difference in my life then i would i would say ask yourself this final question does that make sense to you we're talking about something that should really really change a person does it make sense if we say we believe the gospel that we've never been changed by it lots of times when we were in malaysia i would ask people this is true in the u.s too we hear it sometimes here but uh, more so, I think, in, in Malaysia, for us anyway, we would say, tell me about when you became a Christian. And they say, oh, I was born a Christian. My parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. Their parents were Christians. All of my people, we always have been Christians. But this kind of faith is not something that we just inherit from our parents and our grandparents. It's not true just because our parents and our grandparents say it's true. It's true because we believed it. And because it's true, we believed it. And it's changed us. It's one of the evidences that it is true. It's, it's, it's changed us. And a lot of people who have grown up around the church have been tricked by the idea that they can just accept Christ and then never, never be changed. They can believe in Jesus, but they, can, they live just like the rest of the world lives. And when we're following Christ, the truth is we'll have a life that is dramatically different from the people that are around us, the people who don't know us, or people that don't know Jesus. If we're following Jesus and they're not, there should, be, there should be a real difference. We're not going to be perfect, but we are going to be different. So uh, I would just like to end like this. I'd like to end like Mark does and say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about it? We can either be like the ladies and we can hold it in afraid, or we can be of maybe like the ladies initially holding it in and afraid, or we can be like the ladies later on when they're sharing, even in the face of people not believing them. So I'd encourage you uh, just to give your give some time through your day today. What's your relationship with Christ mean to you? What's it, what's it, how's it impacted your marriage? How's it impacted how you parent? Uh, how does it impact who you date and who you don't date? How's it impact uh, what kind of employee you are? Uh, how does it impact how you spend your money? Any of these kinds of questions. How does, it, how does it impact you? What will you be doing about this? Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for the gospel and how it uh, impacts us and how it changes uh, our lives. We thank you for, uh, Lord, a, a word that was faithfully handed down, Lord, generation to generation and protected so that we might 2,000 years later have a copy of it that we can read and understand and that Lord, is a faithful, faithful um, picture of what was happening in those early days. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to read the word and to know the word and obey the word and to be changed by 
these uh, stories to be changed by your gospel. Lord, I pray for our families and I pray for our, our uh, homes. I pray for uh, our countries. Uh, Lord, whether that's in, in Malaysia or it's around the world, wherever it is that we call home, we just pray and ask that you would be uh, moving. Lord, I know that um, just real pain and suffering in so many places around the world from the virus and from the economic fallout and all these things. And so God, we, we trust these situations to you and we ask that you would move. We pray that you would give our uh, leaders wisdom and I pray that you would uh, give us hearts of generosity, Lord, that we would uh, reject that uh, thing that would cause us, um, uh, I, I've heard Kimberly Creesman talk about this, that we would, that we would embrace physical distancing, but, but not social distancing. Lord, we need one another. And so we pray that uh, even as we're physically distant a bit, that you would uh, allow the church to be more socially present than ever before as we love people and encourage them and as we meet physical needs uh, that we see around us. Help us to be uh, gospel bearers in all of these situations. And Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to bless uh, Eric and Michelle and Kinza, and we pray, God, for healing there, and we ask that your will would be done in their lives. Would, would, you, uh, would you just bless your, your servant these days? And Lord, I pray that you would give him strength, and we thank you, Lord, uh, for the, just the, the fellowship and the love that we have for them and the way that you bring, uh, the, Lord, us together. Though we're different in many ways, you have made us one in Christ, and so we rejoice about that. We pray that you would uh, just bless us as we go through this day and through this week, Lord, we trust ourselves to you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.